Good morning. First of all, I want to extend our heartfelt thanks to the Hamlet Community Church for giving us this space. My name is Russell Atkins. Tim is in Scottsdale, Arizona this morning. Uh, he is in a Gape festival. There are a variety of authors and teachers and educators that have adopted this God is love perspective and have written and taught and, and um, done a variety of things to promote this perspective so they're having a meeting out there in arizona so tim is out there with them so uh before we start let's uh, bow our heads for a word of prayer heavenly father i want to thank you for yet another opportunity to come and and study your word and to glean the pearls of wisdom from it uh, your word is life itself uh, i want to thank you for this day that you set aside for us to to rest and to reflect and for what it represents, that you are indeed a God of freedom, that you will not coerce opinion or beliefs. Uh, please be with those of our group who are not with us and bring them safely back in the weeks ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. We're studying lesson number 10 this morning, um, titled Paul and the Rebellion. Sabbath's memory text, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty four. When the perishable has been clothed with imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Quote, death is, has been swallowed up in victory. This trigger any, any synapses? this trigger anything in your minds about uh, death and victory and et cetera, et cetera? Apparently there was a saying, not necessarily a scripture, but a saying in Paul's time that Death has been swallowed up in victory. Any thoughts? Death was swallowed up in victory when Christ was resurrected. Okay, that, that's correct. That, that's that's absolutely correct. We're going to touch on that uh, later in the week. What? Um, how do we understand death? And and how did his the how do the Corinthians understand death? We're going to touch on that later in the week as well. What's our understanding of death? It's asleep. Okay, you—that's—that's that's the human death. What's actual death? What's the death that uh, Christ often referred to as death? When Christ talked about death, what's he talking about? Separation from God. The second death. A permanent non-existence, an eternal death. We've been over this many times using our biblical geometry and referencing John seventeen three. This is life eternal that you know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. So if life eternal is the knowledge of God, then death eternal must be not knowing God or knowing a false God, which is not knowing the true God. Continuing to use biblical geometry, then death has been swallowed up in victory. How do we, how do we reconcile that with um, this is life eternal or this is death eternal? Well, what did what did Christ come to Earth to do? What, let me rephrase that. What was what was the what was one of the primary missions that Christ came to Earth to do? Reveal the character of God. To reveal the character of His Father. Thus, death has been swallowed up in victory. The victory that Christ achieved at the cross. Uh, this is from the lesson. Um, but anyone who has read Paul knows the Apostle's emphasis has always been on Christ and his ultimate victory for us. Let me, let me back up a little bit. As always, we can, we can view what we read, what we hear, what we say through two different lenses. We can, review from the, we can view it from the imposed law lens, or we can view it from a natural law lens. Listen to this, listen to this passage from lesson through an imposed law lens. Okay, and then... And, we can do it. Okay, it's part of our DNA that we we listen, view things through an imposed law lens. But anyone who has read Paul knows the apostles' emphasis has always been on Christ and His ultimate victory for us. What what does that tell you from an imposed law lens? What was Christ's ultimate victory for us through the imposed law lens? He paid the debt. He assuaged his father's anger. He allowed his his dad to kill him on the cross. That's the victory through the imposed law lens. However much Satan succeeded in overcoming God's covenant people through the centuries, the devil utterly failed against Jesus. And in Jesus, all the covenant promises have been fulfilled, thus ensuring salvation for all who claim it in faith and obedience, Jew and Gentile. Okay? 
How do we read that through an imposed law lens? First of all, I'm glad you guys are having difficulty reverting back to seeing this through an imposed law lens. I struggled with it as well. Through the imposed law lens, what ensures our salvation, Jew and Gentile? All who claim it through faith and obedience. Jesus' blood gets gets applied to the record books in heaven, and uh, all the records of our misdeeds are um, eradicated with a magic red ink. That's what that's what uh, salvation through the imposed law lands. Christ's faithfulness also ensures the ultimate demise of Satan in the end of the great controversy. Was that how we read that through the imposed law lands? He gets what he deserves. <laughs> Satan's going to burn in hell forever. Yay! Okay, now, through the natural law lens. But anyone who's read Paul knows the Apostle's emphasis has always been on Christ and his ultimate victory for us. Through the natural law lens. What does that that tell us? Healing us from sin. Healing us from sin. Christ's victory at the cross accomplished a litany of things, not the least of which was revealing the character of his father, which has already been mentioned, securing the healing remedy for us, Destroying death, bringing that life and immortality to light. We'll we'll touch on that later. Destroying the devil's work, plus a whole host of other, you know, reconciling heavenly beings, reconciling earthly beings back to God the Father. You know, we we can talk. We'll talk for eternity about what was accomplished at the cross through the natural law lens. However much Satan succeeded in overcoming God's covenant people through the centuries, the devil utterly failed against Jesus. And in Jesus, all the covenant promises have been fulfilled, thus ensuring salvation for those who claim it, etc., etc., Jew and Gentile, through the natural law lens. Why did, so, why did Satan utterly fail against Jesus? Because he's looking through the imposed law lens. Okay, good. I, I agree. That's right. I think... I think that's how he tempted. Uh, that's how he tempted the angels was through casting God's law as as one that had been imposed on naturally holy heavenly beings, and and not not giving any credence to the idea that it was the design for life. Just before the, the crucifixion, Christ said, "The devil is coming, but there is nothing in me that is tempted to him." You know, right. He was so in tune with what was right, righteousness. Right, exactly. He was not tempted by anything the devil had to offer. Correct, because he was the designer. He designed life. He created life to operate in this universe on his ways and methods and principles, and nothing the devil had to offer was part of that design. Just like um, the designer of an exotic sports car would not be tempted to put water in the gas tank. Not at all. You know, the, the designer of a, so the, say the Bugatti Veyron, for example, it's a, it's a $2 million car. Go figure that. I watched, a, a, you know, you can see on these, some of these science and discovery channels on how it's made. They profiled how these things are made. They're all handmade. I mean, literally made by hand. It takes three weeks to, to it takes three. Excuse me, it takes eight weeks to assemble the engine. None of, none of those folks that work there on that car are tempted to put water in the gas tank or put sand in the, in the oil uh, in the engine block. It, it doesn't hold any appeal for them because they know it's not, in, it's not in the design to them. That's why, that's why Christ was not... He knew that he would not give in. He, he knew that it was out of design. Now, don't let me diminish the the idea that Christ was, you know, the, the temptations that Christ endured were um, real. Were yeah, meaningless because what's that? He didn't yield to them. He didn't yield to them. That's right. But the temptations that he endured were far far exceeded what we do. We're tempted once or twice, and we often give in. Satan tempted him over and over and over again to gratify himself, to save himself. And and he, with the power to, to gratify himself, to save himself, didn't give in. We, we've talked about this before. None, none of us have been tempted to turn rocks into bread when we're hungry. We don't. 
We don't have the capability to do it. But I like the illustration that uh, Tim gave one time. If somebody was holding you underwater and you had a knife, yeah. and you could reach up and get them off of you, that amount of temptation would be difficult to overcome. Tempted to save yourself, yeah. Because your desire to live is so high. Right. If we were if we were captured by Islamic extremists and waterboarded, and we had a knife, and we could end it. I'd be stabbing. Christ was Christ could have saved himself on the cross. The the, the two thieves beside him, they were stuck. They, they could not they could not bring themselves down from the cross and save themselves. The, the guy in the middle could. All right, Sunday's lesson, Adam and Jesus. What were Adam and Eve's primary task after creation? Animals have been named. They're home in the garden. What was their what was their primary purpose? Multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. That was one of the things that God told them to do. Um, Govern. Why did he tell them to do that? What was the purpose of being fruitful and multiplying? To learn how to love. Okay. To learn how to love. Why was that so important that they learn how to love? Part of the design of God's character. I mean, his, uh, I mean the community concept. That, that, Thank you. That love relationship. They were to reveal... God's character and government to the onlooking universe. The context of creation was the universe was in a state of war. It was in a state of turbulence. There had been certain allegations made about Christ's character and Christ's nature and Lucifer's nature and Lucifer's character. So God set about providing evidence through his son. Let there be light. Let there be a firmament. Let the land separate from the water, etc., etc. Let us make man in our own image. Give them dominion and the ability to procreate, the ability to bring forth new life. Since they failed, what was needed? An escape. (laughs) An escape. Partly. Mission. To complete the mission. Okay, so God's character and government still needed to be revealed to the universe. The term that would normally come to mind would be substitute. But that can be misconstrued. Yes, it it can. Ambassador. Ambassador. Well, a substitute in that he, Jesus, came to do what Adam, to substitute for what Adam failed in. He came to substitute a success. Okay. So, so the original mission of revealing God's character and government and ways and methods to the universe still needed to be done. But there was more than needed to be done now. Now humanity's DNA was uh, defective. What else needed to be done? It needed to be a channel of healing for, the, for those who were affected, right? Okay, so a remedy had to be wrought out in the human species. A remedy for the sickness that Adam and Eve developed for the terminal condition that they developed in their in their hearts and minds, the distrust of God. God to restore our freedom of choice. Had we lost our freedom of choice as to what happened in the Garden of Eden? Did He come to restore our freedom of choice? I, I don't think we. I don't think we lost the freedom of choice. I think that our. Our ability to choose wisely was uh, compromised. There was something that changed in in the hearts and minds and and the literal, the rewiring of the brain of Adam and Eve. They ran ahead because now they're afraid. Well, your options for choice were limited at that point. If Christ didn't come, you had no choice for salvation. (laughs) You were going to die. That's true. Choice, yeah, okay, Uh, that's, that's a fair point. Um, humans still had the had the capabilities to choose. Uh, still had the freedom to choose, mm-hmm. but their capabilities were were um, damaged. The capabilities to choose correctly. Agreement, disagreement. I'm thinking on my toes here. It's it's a good question, insightful question. Thank you. In the first paragraph of Sunday's lesson. 
at the last sentence. We are also spared from God's last judgment against sin, and we rejoice that we have been reconciled to him. What does it mean to be spared God's last judgment against sin? Well, what is God's last judgment against sin? Eternal separation. Eternal separation from God. What's another, what's another term that we understand uh, from our class uh, and our study? Uh, what's another term? What's synonym for judgment? Diagnosis. diagnosis. Okay. What's God? What's God's final diagnosis of sin? It's incompatible with life. Thank you. <laughs> what's a physician's diagnosis of cancer? Terminal. <laughs> it can be terminal. What's what's the, what's the diagnosis of a bone tumor? It's incompatible with the skeletal system. God's final diagnosis, God's final judgment against sin is that it's, it's incompatible with his design. And how are we spared that judgment? How do we understand we're spared that judgment? Through the natural law lens. We're healed. We're healed. Our thoughts and, our, thoughts and our characters, our hearts and minds are in harmony with the way life was designed. We're diagnosed as, as well. That's how we're spared. The legal law lens is that we're covered in Christ's blood. The record books have been purged. Thoughts? The subconscious runs pretty deep, you know, that that, uh, Paul was a lawyer, you know, in the Sanhedrin or or in the, you know, upper classes of the Jewish nation. Mm -hmm. So we just naturally go to that legal model. I think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's. Yeah. I agree. It's part of our DNA. Um, no question. And it's how we handle issues ourselves. You did wrong. You go to court. You pay a fine. You get put in jail for mm-hmm. a five period until your punishment is, you know, received. It's hard for us to imagine God taking vengeance any other way than the way we would do it. Right. Even the terms we use. Well, he's paid his debt to society. Right. You know, his, he's completed his sentence. He's paid his debt to society. Um, I included a, a fairly long passage from the remedy. I'm not going to read all of it. It's from Romans 5, 12 through 21. I am going to read 18 through 21, however. And, and remember, we're we're comparing... Adam and Christ, the first and second Adams. <clears throat> Therefore, just as Adam's distrust infected humanity with a fatal condition of fear and selfishness, so too Christ's choice to sacrifice self achieved the life-giving remedy for all humanity. Just as Adam's choice infected the human race with a terminal condition, so too Christ's perfect life has brought the remedy to heal all who accept it. The written law was added so the infection of distrust and selfishness could be more easily seen and diagnosed. As the exposure, excuse me, could be seen and diagnosed. As the exposure of sin and selfishness increased, God's willingness to heal increased all the more. So that just as distrust and selfishness brought deformity and death, even more importantly, God's gracious remedy brought by Jesus Christ results in complete healing and life eternal. Does this give you any insights to the great controversy? Anyone read any other uh, paraphrases or versions? Because they're not all—they're not all that clear. Um, just as an aside, I, if Adam—if Adam needed Eve in order to reveal God's government of truth and love and freedom in order to you know, bring forth new life and in, a, in an unfallen state to give of themselves, to bring up new life and continue giving of themselves you know, generation after generation. If that was necessary for Adam and Eve, why, why didn't Christ marry? He did. The church. Okay, why didn't he marry a, an actual a Jewish female? I, I like I like where you're going with that. I mean, you, and you're absolutely right. And in fact, he, yes, he he married the church, and he he's still waiting for the bride to to be reunited with him. And the individual members divorce themselves, and 
reconcile themselves, you know, on an hourly basis. But why why didn't he why wasn't it necessary for him to to marry and raise a family? And to bear in mind, I don't have any I don't have any overwhelming, you know, insightful answers to this. I've got some theories, but You wouldn't have had time. <laughs> <laughs> I barely make it through the day, so I can so, imagine how he would. So wives and children are a distraction. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> it was his character that was called into question. So if he were to go to a um, a neutral party, like an Eve, and then repopulate the earth, there would still be that carryover from the great controversy that happened up in heaven. There needed to be that nu- that neutral. Um, demonstration for the for the heaven host to see that what community is really all about away from the controversy that was surrounded in heaven. All right, that's good. That's that's one I hadn't considered. Okay, the, first of all, there were no sinless women on the earth for him to raise children with. All the children would still been infected with the condition, right? And I think her point about he wouldn't have had time is, is accurate as well. Any folks with children here? Okay. They're a, they're a boatload of work, and they often distract you from things that you should be more focused on. And it's not a bad thing. It just is what it is. So... You know, as a single as a single guy, I think about things like this. Well, why didn't Christ need to get married? You know, what what if he didn't get married? Then maybe it's okay for me too. Um, and the prophets had said that he wouldn't get married. I mean, you know, obviously the prophets wouldn't have said he wouldn't get married if they knew he was going to. But in fulfillment of prophecy, that was one of the prophecies of having no offspring. Well, I don't think that um, I don't think he avoided getting married just because. He wanted to fulfill prophecy. I think prophecy, you know, he, he inspired the prophets to write that because he knew he wasn't going to get married. Um, but his relationship with the Father is so much more closer than any type of relationship we have with each other. That's right. The Father, him, the Father and the Holy Spirit were in perfect union of three. Except, as human beings here on this earth, the only thing that we know, I mean, the deepest love that we know, is a love for our spouse and our children. Yes. And so... Consequently, when we, when we compare anything that we do to something, we say, well, it's like a husband and a wife that love, or it's a mother's love for her child. And so I have often wondered to myself why Christ didn't marry in order for us to see more of a human relationship that he would have. Instead of, to me, it always seemed like he had an advantage because he was perfect. He was born without sin and all that. So, you know, he had an advantage over us. If he had married and had children, it would have made him more human to me. It would have made me easier to understand how he went through these things that he did. That's a good thought. I promise you, growing up as an adolescent, there were you know, the Jewish Galilean princesses that wanted, uh, wanted to marry him. Mm-hmm. I, I can almost guarantee you that all the women that were following him around were romantically in love with him and wanted him as their husband. Because he was the only, he was the only male that had treated them Kindness. With kindness, with compassion, that they were more than a piece of property. So yeah, I, I'd be willing to bet that all the ladies, you know, that were ministering to the disciples' needs, were in love with him and, and wanted him to father their children. So he caused a lot of women to have sinful thoughts throughout his. <laughs> Is it sinful to want to be loved, to appreciate being loved? Right? No, I don't think so at all. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Uh, there was another hand, yes. Yeah, uh, you know, the other thought that comes to mind, we do have, a, as humans, we have a tendency to want to idolize things. I think that's one of the reasons why the sanctuary was gone, the items in the sanctuary are gone. I think if Jesus had a, a lineage, we would have looked to that lineage more than we should have. Exactly. And that's a, a, another great point. His symbol is time, not an object, but a symbol is of his leadership, his royalty, his creator ability is the Sabbath. Yeah. And that's a time signature, not an item, because we tend to, you know, idolize anything that is put into a, a form. Oh, 
we still we idolize the Sabbath as well. We, we misrepresent and idolize the Sabbath. How many of you saw the, the movie um, The Da Vinci Code? Okay, this is a movie about you know Christ's last living uh, offspring. The the woman character, the the French detective, she was she was supposedly Christ's last living um, progeny, and she was being hounded and pursued by the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church wanted to get rid of her, kill her because in Catholic teaching he didn't marry. And there are several Gnostic Gospels. The Gospel of Mary, one of of the Marys, she claims in the Gospel that she and Jesus were married and they did have children. To Linda's point, I I think she's dead right, that if if there were a bloodline, if if there were a bloodline from his ministry on earth, we are all Christ's bloodline. If you... Go to Luke, trace the lineage of, of uh, Christ all the way back. You know, son of Methuselah, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. Well, look how they, they thought of his robe that he wore. Exactly. And, you know, there, there, are, there are churches all across the world that claim to have a splinter from his cross and a, and a piece and a, you know, sample of his blood. And, and this little piece of wood is, is worshipped. You know the 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 idolization of relics of that time. This also goes back to um, you know why did he have to leave? Why yeah. Did he, why did he have to go back to heaven? That's right. And why do we have the Holy Spirit? You know, Christ said it would be even better that he go away, mm-hmm. and that the Holy Spirit would come. You know, it wasn't less; it's better. That's right. It's necessary. Well said. This is from the lesson. Um, Even the giving of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai could not stop death and the sin problem. The law only clarified what sin is. It is not the answer to sin. The problem of sin and death could only be solved through the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus paid the debt through the gracious gift of his own life. Thoughts? Any which law lens are you listening to this through? The giving of the King, Ten Commandments could not stop death and the sin problem. That's dead accurate, no matter which lens you look through. Jesus paid the debt through the gracious gift of his own life. Who did he pay the debt to? The law began to clarify what sin is. Okay? The 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 Carvings on stone began the process. It was a very succinct encapsulation of God's love. Okay, There's no commandment against molesting a dead horse, so that must be okay, right? Yeah, it's not on tablets of stone. It must not be sin. It began to clarify what sin is. The problem of sin and death could only be solved through Christ's self-sacrifice. All right, Monday's lesson, the church building. This is from Spirit Prophecy, Volume 3, page 41. We've heard this, or we've heard quotes like this before, but it it, it bears revisiting because it, get your minds around this. She's referring to um, the symbolism between the uh, workers on constructing Solomon's Temple and us as being the... Um, the stones to be added to the temple of God. Earth is the quarry and the workshop where men are to be fitted and refined for the courts of heaven. As the stones composing Solomon's temple came together in the wall, a perfect fit, without the touch of axe or hammer or any other instrument, so will the resurrected saints and those who are alive at the time of Christ, excuse me, that are alive at the time of his coming be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, each one fitted for the great change and taking his proper place in the temple of God's love. In my own study, I've just been reading through Second Kings and Second Chronicles, which describe the, um, the building of, of the Solomon's temple. 
And it's inconceivable to me watching, you know, why you, we drive by construction sites all the time and it's noisy. You hear the sound of power tools, you hear the sound of hammers, you hear the sound of um, all sorts of stuff. Okay? You know what I'm talking about. Um, imagine building a temple of, of, of the immensity that Solomon's temple was and, and the, and the uh, majesty that it was. And not hearing the sound of an axe or a hammer. All you hear are instructions being shouted back and forth. They had the, the stones had already been pre-measured, pre-cut, pre-designed in the quarry. They were cut there, fitted, shaped there, brought to the uh, construction site. Now today we can we can pre-measure a. a a brick. We can preform a brick. In fact, there's a fairly standard measurement for a brick or a cinder block. That can be done. But when you're when you're laying stone on top of stone and having them fit perfectly without mortar, it becomes a bit more challenging and a bit more. It needs to be a bit more precise. So we are all being the earth is the, is the metaphoric quarry, and each of us is being shaped into an appropriate shaped stone with Christ as the chief cornerstone to be fitted in the, quote, temple of God's love. Does this give you any new insights about into the passage about us being God's temple? The body is God's temple. I'm not certain that all parables and analogies are, are complete. Okay. Um... We will grow up into Christ. Yes. In the kingdom. And yes, our love has been planted in God's love has been planted in us. But we are not maybe mature. You can think of any of us. I mean, you, the the natural thing is to, to blame the thief on the cross for everything. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, dare say that any of us have achieved perfection of character and communication and communion with each other you know talks about the tree the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations i don't know what that means but there's got to be something it kind of implies that there may be some healing still going on after we get there i've wondered about that too um, and i don't have any wonderful insights uh to it uh, i do think however that in order for us to get there we will have participated and cooperated with the hewing and the and the fitting process you know the god's temple is a living temple we are to be living pillars in the tabernacle and the temple of god so yes you know living things do continue to grow they grow they grow in wisdom and stature and uh so yeah there will be a lot of growth yet to be done when we get to heaven but the fitting process, you know, the process of fitting, I believe, occurs here on Earth. Thoughts? That's what it means by our character. Uh, Jesus said it's better that the Holy Spirit, you know, I go to heaven and I send the Holy Spirit because he'll take what's mine and give it to you. Well, that is Christ's character. Uh, the Bible says you have the mind of Christ. Not you're, you know, you're like the mind of Christ. You actually have the mind of Christ. Mm-hmm. The Holy Spirit takes what's His, His own mind, His own character, and puts it in you and replaces what you've got or ruined or rewired. You know, rewired. Literal rewiring. That's right. It redoes you, and you have to not be resistant to that. <laughs> Correct. You have to be trust Him enough to say, okay. I don't trust myself. I don't trust anybody else. I've made a mess of things. The whole world's made a mess of things. The only being I can trust in the whole universe is you. And I trust my whole self, internally and externally, to you. Do your thing. It's like when we take a pill. We didn't develop it. We don't know how it works usually. We just say a a doctor we trust gives it to us. We take it. And whatever they did to make it work, it goes to the right place and makes it work. And But we have to be willing to take that medicine. We don't quite know how it works, but we know it does. So that's where the trust comes in and where 
it's more expedient that the Holy Spirit is in more places than Jesus could have been mm-hmm. and can take what Jesus developed and, and give it to us and fit us that way to be totally in sync with him. Well said. Yes. I wonder if there's only a percentage of the brain that we actually use. So I've always been um, curious if maybe there's like a percentage that needs to be molded, like a part of us that needs to be molded, but that the rest of it is just kind of waiting there for us to get to heaven. And then once we do, um, they'll just be like a, like a click. And the other 95% of our brains that we don't use has all of that information already stored in there. And that's why some people that can, um, that can get into those parts of the brain, I've think maybe that's where like levitation and telekinesis and stuff like that comes from. It's just been something that I've thought about before um, that maybe there's there's a part that we control but the rest of it is there just waiting um, for our hard drive to be opened in heaven. It's an interesting thought. Uh, I I suspect that uh, the reality is some something along those lines. And you know, sin has degraded the human condition physically, mentally, spiritually, you know, untold in untold ways. Yeah, we we if we were to look on our first parents, they wouldn't recognize us, and uh, that we'd be afraid of them. You know, Ellen White suggests Adam was somewhere around what eighteen feet tall. And do the math on that. That's Probably, you know, his head would be brushed in the air conditioning duct. And Eve was, you know, one head shorter than, you know, uh, it came up to his shoulder. We're talking about the church building. What, what's the purpose of it? What's our purpose? What is the church's purpose? He's not this big, scary guy waiting on you to screw up so he can point his finger at you and get upset with you and say, no, you're going to hell forever. He's up there waiting on you to realize that you've screwed up and that it's okay to come to, to God because he's your dad and he's just waiting to hug you and say everything's going to be all right. So we're to continue the process of revealing the character and love of God to humanity that doesn't know it yet. Is that a, is that a fair summary? Yep. I think there's a, a process of um, teaching people not to be so literal. You know, I, I didn't have my own children, so I don't know this from firsthand experience. Mm-hmm. My wife has told me that when you say things to children, you got to be careful because they take things very literally. And um, I, I know that for a fact. I can give you examples, you know, <laughs> from what I've done. But um, <clears throat> the, the point is that, that children need to learn to translate you know, from the literal to the spiritual to, you know, to what really makes a difference in the mind uh, as to how they relate to things. Oh, absolutely. And this is what I think the the work of the church and of, of, you know, people who have their varying degrees of maturity are responsible for. Well, even within the church, there are adults and there are children. Right. You know, there are spiritual adults and spiritual children. I mean, Paul and and other references talks about you need to be, you should be eating adult food by now. You should not be continuing to eat baby's milk. Yeah. So yes, there, there is a a spiritual maturation that needs to occur as well, as well as the physical maturation. And you're right, kids have a difficult time thinking in the abstract. Everything's concrete. Like when the Bible says, you'll be fitted into the, te- the temple of God and you will never leave it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's going to be boring. I thought we were, okay. I thought we were going to be traveling to other planets and having fun, you know, surfing on the sea of glass. You know, yeah. a, a, a more uh, expansive view of that would be you will never leave your love and trust of God. Mm-hmm. You will always be God's person after that. And then we're never, you, you know, you will never be tempted to go astray because you've you are now part of God's temple. You know, I mean, how many depictions of heaven do we still see of people sitting on a cloud strumming a harp? Okay, that's a literal inter- interpretation of you know one small passage. That sounds boring to me. 
But then yet we'll be studying the plan of salvation throughout eternity. Correct. So you think to yourself, how hard could that be? <laughs> you know, I mean, throughout eternity? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, how hard is it to get our minds around the concept of eternity? Yeah. We have a beginning and an end. It is, I'm not sure our minds will ever comprehend what inf- infinite is. Yeah. Because we can't. We're created beings. We're finite beings. And we're so constrained by time. Speaking of being constrained by time. (laughs) Even God's very existence. You know, I had somebody say to me one time when I was talking, they don't believe in God or anything. And I was saying, well, I see such a design in myself and in nature that I have no, I don't have enough faith to believe that we just happened. I, I just simply don't have enough faith for that because it's too complex, too interdependent to have happened on its own. Person said, "Oh, so if there's a design, there has to be a designer. Well, where did the designer come from?" And I, I just simply told her, "I said, when was the last time you tried to explain to your cat how you came to be, how how your being is? No matter how many ways you tried to explain it, your cat does not have the capability of understanding how people are created, mm-hmm. what their life is like, what they do, what they accomplish." I mean, the difference between us and a cat or a minnow or whatever thing you want to think of is maybe that much, and the difference between us and God is to the ceiling. Infinitely more. We just can't understand what the Bible says. You can't even imagine what heaven's going to be like. Correct. No matter how hard you try. Uh, before we wrap up, I want to skip to Wednesday's lesson. You know, Tuesday's lesson is talking about the church as a body. Um, we could speak, we could talk for months about the um, the metaphor of the human body, uh, comparing the the members and functions of the church. So, uh, Wednesday's lesson talking about the armor of God and uh, you know spiritual and spirit, uh, warfare. Is there any danger in taking the warfare metaphor literally, like was mentioned earlier? Or are we talking about a bit of an abstraction? Okay, I, I give you reference of the Dark Ages. It was a, a, roughly a thousand years when the Christian Church took that warfare metaphor literally. And even today, there are branches of Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, both Catholic and Protestant, who take the take the uh, metaphor of warfare literally. What is what does Scripture tell us about the warfare? Very common text that we've heard many times in here. For the weapons of the warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for what? Pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. It's not a literal warfare. It's a warfare, it's a war of ideas, it's a war of, it's a war of um, principles. A war, a, a, we're, okay, and we're, we're asked to choose sides, and there are only two. Okay, what, what, what is the armor of God? This is what we're talking about in this lesson. Uh, Ephesians 6. Paul tells us, what the warfare is and why the armor is important. Finally, my brethren, be strong in, in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may, why? That you might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers and rulers of darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Again, it's not a literal warfare. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Why? That you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you may be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So, let's examine these uh, implements of armor. The belt, belt of truth. What is it the truth does for us? Sets us free. Okay, good. That's right. You will know the truth and it shall set you free. What else does it do? What does truth do? It's a lamp. It corrects error. 
It informs it, everything. It eradicates lies. Right. It dispels the lies that we have believed. The lies about God's character, the, what, the lies about his methodologies, his principles. They're actually part of our DNA. The breastplate, which is righteousness. Interesting that Paul, I don't think it's, I don't think it was arbitrary. I think it was inspired that he talked about the breastplate covering the vital organs, i.e. the heart, uh, with armor. When people went out to literal war, they had, if they were smart, if they had a breastplate and a shield. We'll talk about the shield in a minute. Righteousness, heart transformation yields righteousness. Christ weaves his own character into ours. This is what it means to be covered in the robe of Christ's righteousness. We do what's right because it's right. This is level six and level seven of moral development. The shoes, the gospel of peace. I want to suggest that true conversion does not occur without our wanting to share our experience. Okay, we are... We cannot help ourselves. We, we must share what Christ has done for us. And notice the gospel of peace. It's not the gospel of the wrath of the Lamb. If you had terminal cancer and you went to a good doctor and they gave you good medicine, <laughs> yeah. you had the trust and you took it and you were cured, you couldn't help but share that. You'd want anyone else you met, particularly anyone with cancer, right. to say, you've got to go see this guy. He cured me. You, you can't stop talking about it because it's that real. That's correct. In spiritual terms, it's that real in that we understand it medically because so many people are dying with cancer lately, especially. Mm-hmm. Spiritually, it's exactly the same. You can't not share that your whole life has been uh, improved, corrected, balanced, and so on. Prolonged. Through this uh, relationship with God, through what he's done to you and the cure he's given you. Well said. The shield, shield of faith. What's another term for faith? Trust. Trust, thank you. What kind of a trust? Trust in someone you know. A trust in someone we know, someone we know well. You trust them with your life. Trust based on evidence. Thank you. Not a blind trust. This is a trust based on evidence. The helmet is which is salvation. This is, this represents a conscious understanding and cooperation with God's methods and principles and government. And this yields healing or salvation. This is the level seven, the friend of God, where we consciously choose to operate in design, in harmony with design law. And the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. See Hebrews four twelve. This is not a God said it, I believe it, that settles it, uh, use of the word of God. Okay, how many times do we, how many times do we use God's word as a spiritual weapon? We beat friends and loved ones over the head with uh, our doctrines or with certain scriptures or this, that, and the other. And all we do is end up wounding and scarring them. Okay, this is a friend of God approach where we understand that God's word is life itself because he designed it. He designed things to function in harmony with this character of love. God's word is life. I think it's most interesting that it says put on the whole armor of God. The opposite of not, of, if you didn't put on the whole armor of God, what would happen if you only put on part of the armor? For example, I have faith, but I don't have the truth. I have righteousness, I, I trust my life to God, but I don't have the truth. So what I'm spreading is error. Mm-hmm. So I'm doing it, I think, in the name of God. People at the end would say, well, I prophesied in your name. I cast out demons in your name. I performed miracles in your name. And God's response was, uh, I never knew you. Get away from me, you evildoer. Yep. So, I mean, it's important to embrace all of the... All the aspects of the armor, because with only part of it, you're vulnerable, and you also are prone to mislead other people. That's right. Think, think Goliath for a minute. 
Okay, he had he had an entire suit of armor and a heavy spear and a sword. And he laughed at David and he pushed his helmet back or took it off. Some some versions say he took it off. And what happened? Dave sunk a stone in his forehead, killed him. Okay, if we're walking around with just a shield, we're susceptible to a headshot. Or we might have the shield point in the wrong direction and take a take a shot to the heart. Yes, the whole armor. I, that, thank you, that's well said. Or you could have the word of God, but if you don't have the <laughs> yeah. other aspects, you could, like you say, beat people over the head with the... The, the, right. Not with the gospel of peace, but with the just the word of God, bam, you know. Mm-hmm. All we're doing is inflicting wounds. Um, I I don't know how we're going to do on time uh, since we started late. Uh, one last thing from uh, Thursday's lesson, and we'll get out of here. Uh, the Last Enemy, this is the title of this lesson. Um, and the lesson goes on to say that, you know, the, and, and referencing scripture, the death is the last enemy. Um, if death had already been defeated, you know, which in, in his second letter to Timothy, you know, Christ came to defeat death and bring life and immortality to light. Why does Paul tell the Corinthians that death is the last enemy? Which in which death is he talking about in Second Timothy? In which death is he talking about to the Christian to the uh, Corinthians? Is he talking about the same death in both passages, or is he talking is one and he's talking about an eternal death? Quote, death, capital D, death has been defeated. And when he's talking to the Corinthians, he's talking about the death that we understand as a sleep. Because they were, the Corinthians were apparently having some struggles about the concept of being resurrected. And couldn't possibly get their minds around the idea that the sleep that we know of death is one of the, one of the greatest blessings to humanity that we've ever known. Ponder that for the rest of the afternoon. <laughs> More of the point, it has stemmed the tide of evil. The uh, you know humanity going to sleep. It has it has slowed the uh, the flood of evil. Okay, let's uh, bow our heads. Father, I want to thank you for the exceedingly great lengths and risks of being misunderstood that you went to to reveal your character of truth and love and freedom through the life, death, and resurrection of your son on this earth. I want to thank you for this class, uh, the individuals that make it up, uh, and the class corporately itself, for the leadership, uh, and ask that you continue to use us as your instruments. Uh, Please help us put on your entire armor so that we can better uh, serve you in the spiritual warfare that we're dealing in. In Jesus' name, amen.